Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we're going to be talking about something that is on all our minds these days. We can't help but think about it because it's the headlines. Um, And that is, uh, what makes mass shooters tick? In particular, we're going to look at Bobby Cremo, who was the mass shooter um, on July 4th, the parade, in um, Chicago, in a suburb of Chicago, and Nicholas Cruz, who is on trial uh, as we speak. Um, I speak, you listen. Um, He is on trial uh, for, it's the penalty phase, on trial to be sentenced. He already admitted that he was guilty, and really it wasn't a a question because he's Nicholas Cruz, just to refresh your memory, is the school shooter in Parkland, Florida. Uh, He shot 17 students and teachers. Well, he he killed 17 students and teachers with his shooting spree, and he injured 17 more. And um, that was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. So he... um, so everybody saw who it was who was shooting. So that's why I said it's not a question. Wasn't a who done it. Everybody knew who. Um, similarly, really, with the shooter in uh, Highland Park, the July Fourth shooter, Bobby Cremo. People did uh, didn't take very long to figure out who the shooter was. Um, so I'm going to talk about both of these to exemplify this whole issue of what makes mass shooters tick. There is a certain pattern that mass shooters follow uh, in terms of who they are before they do the shooting. And um, it's, you know, it's the same pattern over and over again, and yet nothing happens to stop them. Well, I shouldn't say nothing happens. What happens uh, for some people, sometimes it gets political, Uh, For some politicians who think that the solution, and not just politicians, actually there are a lot of people who think uh, that the solution is um, banning guns or doing some kind of, making making legislation harder, making it harder to buy a gun through legislation of various sorts. Now, um, the problem is that uh, guns, even banning guns, do not solve, would not solve, the problem of mass shooters. Because mass shooters can use other implements to do their killings, whether it's uh, knives or taking a car and running it down the street, you know, driving it down the street, hitting pedestrians. Um, there are various ways of setting a bomb. You know, there are various ways of killing masses. It doesn't have to be with a gun. But the gun is the last part of this progression, this pattern that I'm talking about. Uh, you know, the, the last part is having an access to weapons. It doesn't have to be a gun, but access to weapons. But that's the very last, that's what happens right before the shooter goes on a shooting spree or whatever, you know, a killer goes on a, on a shooting spree or you know, a card jamming spree or whatever kind of spree 
they're going to go down. Um, and there are many things before that. There are many signals, red flags, that mass shooters give. Uh, from the, Some of them, like, uh, like Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter, and um, also Bobby Cremo, the uh, July 4th shooter, they gave red flags. They were sending up red flags for years. Um, Nicholas Cruz was 19 when he shot up the Parkland school and, um, Bobby Cremo was 22 this past July 4th when he shot up the parade. So we're talking about, you know, their childhood primarily and teenage years. And, um, and sometimes for some shooters in their twenties or early twenties. So that's a lot of time to be giving up, putting up red flags and nobody paying attention to them. And that is really the crux of it. Uh, banning guns won't stop mass shooters, but better parenting will. It all comes down to parenting. So first I'll talk about this pattern, and then I'll talk about each of these mass shooters and how they exemplify the pattern. So, okay, so the first thing is uh, a dysfunctional family. Now, looking at um, Bobby Cremo, for example, he checks all the boxes for this pattern. Uh, his this family was dysfunctional in spades. Um, his mother is very strange, and she, you can tell, you know, the, um, you can tell who she was by, by one thing that I'll tell you about her in regard to um, her son, how she treated him. Um, when he was two years old, she left him in a hot car for 27 minutes, and she was convicted of this. Then uh, when she, when in 2015, she was convicted of domestic battery in a car, and it seems likely that... Um, he, the son, Bobby Cremo, Bobby Cremo III is his full name. Um, it seems likely that he was the victim in that as well. We had a coach talk about how, um, how when, the, when she would come to pick up the kids, he had two siblings. So there was a, a brother and a sister. And when Bobby Cremo's mother would come to pick them up, uh, after school, you know, where she, the coach had been teaching them various sports, the coach uh, reported, you know, after this incident, um, that that the mother was always late, and that there was no love in the family, and that especially from the mother, and that it was clear that the mother felt that these kids were a burden. Um, she is a healer of some strange sort. <laughs> I don't think she has any uh, degrees to be a healer, but she calls herself a healer. Um, she has a house. She lives. Her his parents are divorced. I mean, typically the typical things that are fit this pattern that start off a a mass shooter is uh, abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, or abuse by neglect. And uh, although it's not clear that Bobby Cremo had physical or sexual abuse, and it's certainly clear that he had abuse by neglect, starting when he was two years old and left in a hot car. Um, so 
So his parents got divorced. Uh, it was, that divorce is another part of that as well. Typically, they come from a broken family. So, um, so, so she lived in a house that the you know presumably that was the house that she lived in when they were married, his original house. Um, but in any case, it's falling apart. And the father lives in a different house. So. Um, one of the red flags, kind of a real obvious one, is that Bobby Cremo painted on the wall of his mother's house a mural that showed a, um, a silhouette, a black silhouette of a young man pointing a rifle. You know, basically it was a picture of himself. Now, hello, <laughs> I would say that that was kind of a clue as to what he was going to do in the future. Uh, along with others that I'll tell you about, um, his father, his well, first of all, his parents, there were many police calls to come to the home when he was growing up while his parents were together because there was domestic violence between the two parents. And um, that also, uh, domestic violence between parents uh, affects kids in a very uh, traumatic way. It's, it's really causes trauma, even if they are not the victim of the, you know, if they don't receive the blows or the physical abuse themselves, um, just watching their parents have domestic violence against each other, uh, that is very traumatic in itself. Now, the father, in 2019, so like uh, two years or Two and a half years before uh, he, you know, he uh, became a mass shooter on July 4th, he, he shot the parade in case he, he um, what he did was he got went up to the rooftop of a building that was at the beginning of the parade route. And he, um, you know, shot uh, this with a, a barrage of bullets uh, from a rifle. And um, about a year, two years or so beforehand, there were incidents where police were called to his house. Um, at one time, it was because he had told somebody that he was suicidal. And a few months later, they came to the house because he had told somebody that he was going to shoot, shoot up his own family. Now, clearly, um, he was very angry at his family, especially his mother. And so what happened when he, when the police were called? Um, they came to the house. They didn't arrest him. And supposedly, on at least one occasion, they called some psych, uh, mental health professional, whether it was, you know, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or um, somebody from Child Protective Services. It's uh, still a little unclear. But somebody from the mental health professional, and that person basically did nothing. Uh, he should have been, on both of those occasions, if he was homicidal or suicidal, he should have been hospitalized against his will, involuntarily hospitalized, because that is the, uh, those are the criteria to be able to hospitalize somebody against their will. If they're a danger to self, suicidal, or a danger to others, homicidal, or if they cannot provide uh, a roof over their head and food and clothing to themselves. Now, uh, he did have a roof over his head, but, um, and, you know, his parents 
his parents provided him with food and so on, or one of his parents. It was like, it's very, it's very sort of weird, but it seems like he was living with his father and his uncle in a house, in a different house from his mother, because they were divorced. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't about providing a roof or clothes or food. It was being suicidal and homicidal. So what did his father do just months after, um, in 20, still in 2019, months after the police had been called for his being suicidal and homicidal? What did his father do? He signed permission for his son to buy a gun. Now, and, and the police, even though they had filled out a form, um, you know, like to uh, sort of warning of his being a danger, um, when he did go to buy a gun down the road, um, he, 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 was, it was sold to him for some reason that that didn't really do anything because at the time that they uh, wrote this report that he was a danger, he didn't have a license to uh, have a gun. So it kind of, it fell through the cracks is the bottom line. So, all right. So that's, so first there's this dysfunctional family. Then um, there is a personality, there's some kind of mental illness, a personality disorder and or a more serious mental illness. Now, um, it hasn't been reported yet what, what kind of mental illness he has. In other words, whether he has schizophrenia or bipolar disorder on top of a personality disorder, um, such as a sociopathic or antisocial personality. But, um, so that's yet to be seen, but clearly I think there's a good chance, especially because, you know, schizophrenia, um, this first signs or the first break, it's called the first psychotic break of a schizophrenic usually occurs during, uh, adolescence or early adulthood. So usually between 17 and 23, you can, there is such a thing as childhood schizophrenia as well, but I don't think he had that. Um, so when these shooters, you know, um, Nicholas Cruz, on the other hand, as I'll talk to you about later, um, he, I think he is, was and is, still is schizophrenic. Uh, and I will explain why. But um, getting back to Bobby Cremo, so, okay, so, um, so, so if they would have hospitalized him, they would have gotten to the root of his mental illness. Now, that's another part of the pattern, that the people who go on to be mass shooters either get no therapy or inadequate therapy because they fall through the cracks. Neither the therapist nor the parents uh, make sure that the person continues to get intensive treatment, you know, diagnosed and treated. And uh, so that is what happened. I do not think Bobby Cremo ever got any kind of therapy, even though, you know, some of the parents of his friends have come out and said that he told them, he told the friends or he even told the parents of the friends that he was suicidal. And I, I think at least some of them, one or more, called his parents. I don't know if they called the father or the mother, but they did tell them. And in fact, that might be how the first time that the police came might have been one of the times that the, that this parent of a friend called the police and told them that because the, his own parents were just checked out. His father, by the way, um, his father ran for mayor. He lost 
but he ran from there. <laughs> That's how checked out he was. He was didn't have, you know, more important for him to run from there than to pay attention to his son as the son develops into a mass shooter. Um, now, what else? Then another part of the pattern is uh, problems in school. So these problems can include uh, not doing well in school, you know, bad grades, or, um, or also typically bullying, being bullied, or being isolated because other kids think that they're a nerd or, you know, um, bullies in school have radar to tell who are the kids who are most vulnerable to their bullying. In other words, who are the kids who are most likely to be coming from a dysfunctional home? And they hone in on them because uh, they know that they're going to be the easiest to bully. Now, with um, Bobby Cremo, his uncle said that he did have problems in school. Then, um, obsession with violent video games. This, you know, the violent the video game industry does not want to uh, does not want you to know. But every single mass shooter, particularly school shooters, um, have come from a background where they were obsessed with violent video games. And um, Bobby Cremo was particularly obsessed with a game called Hitman, where the star of that show, the Hitman, the star of the game, was um, Hitman an Agent 47. Okay, we can stop here. When we come back, I'll tell you all about Agent 47 and all of the other games he was obsessed with and the other signs that he um, filled, you know, the other parts of the pattern that he fulfilled as warning signs that he was going to become a mass shooter. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in. 
at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your uh, psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Uh, We're talking today about what makes mass shooters tick, looking at the most recent mass shooters, well, Bobby Cremo was the July 4th parade shooter in Highland Park, a suburb of Chicago. And Nicholas Cruz, actually his crime, his mass shooting was in 2018, Valentine's Day. But why he's current (laughs) is because uh, his trial is going on, not a trial to determine guilt or innocence. He's already pled guilty, which I think was a big mistake, but we'll get into that. Um, And um, and so he's... They're determining his sentence right now, whether he uh, gets life without parole or whether he is put to death. Uh, So we'll get to Nicholas Cruz, but let me finish talking about, well, what I'm really talking about so far is the pattern of these mass shooters, things that that, that are obvious when they are younger, as they're growing up, before they're they're mass shooting. So... um, with Bobby Cremo, the the parade, July Fourth parade shooter, um, I was talking before before the break. I was talking about his obsession with violent video games, and his favorite is one called Hitman, where uh, Agent Forty Seven is the star of the show, and he um, he ha- you know fancies himself as Agent Forty Seven. He's had the number forty seven tattooed on his face. He had the number 47 um, pasted on his car, attached somehow, in in huge numbers, you know. Um, And and Agent 47, I mean, you know, obviously you can imagine what Agent 47 does. He's the one who's who's the hitman, uh, who shoots lots of people dead. His other favorite uh, video game is Call of Duty and where he played the shooter on the roof, which is what he then played in real life. Now, Call of Duty is a very interesting violent video game because that actually has been responsible. It's a very popular game, and it's been responsible for a lot of mass shooters, uh, you know, contributing to their becoming mass shooters. And, in fact, it's used um, to train military on... um, on, uh, to, to get the military to shoot, in other words, to get training military people, recruits, to overcome their natural fear or, or, or humane, humane feelings uh, about not shooting another human being by playing on Call of Duty and other violent video games. So, like, there is, you know, so it makes no sense that people would try to say and that, that these video games don't uh, encourage people to shoot. In fact, there have been decades of studies that show that the more violence you consume, the more uh, aggressive you become, the more hours of media violence you consume, the more aggressive you become. And video games are the biggest, um, the most important or the most powerful of any of the other, you know, rather than television or movies or um, rap music, you know, there's other violent media, but especially violent video games make people aggressive. 
Um, so let's see. And access to weapons. So, oh, well, first, um, drugs and alcohol also contribute to making a mass shooter. And access to weapons. Um, now, not just guns. Uh, like, for example, Bobby Cremo had a huge knife collection, and that, that was what he was going to do. Uh, that's how he was going to kill his family, it is thought. And so what the police did when they came to the house is they took away his knife collection. <laughs> his father, wait. His father said that it was his collection. Uh, so his father has been an enabler this whole time. So, um, so also, Bobby Cremo was very interesting because he had um, he was a, a you know a burgeoning rapper, while as well as a burgeoning mass shooter, um, and he made three rock rap. Uh, videos that were that he posted online, and um, I don't know if there's you, you probably still can find them online. I found them online. I mean, I know they were taking down a lot of his things, his posts, but um, but you know, people took took screenshots and so on, so they were still there when I looked. And um, it was so obvious what his plan. I mean, he made he didn't try to hide his plans. Um, what they were very apparently they was they were and not just apparently I saw them I think he was very talented um, he was very musically talented the video you know the editing and the visuals were like amazing and and he had sixteen thousand people download um, his videos at least there was per month or or one of them in particular I mean a lot of people enjoyed them <laughs> probably some for the wrong reasons. Um, but, they, for example, one of them was him sitting in a classroom, and he's singing a song about how he likes um, this girl in his class, and um, he, and, but he doesn't think she likes him, and he's kind of sad, and and uh, and then it goes into his shooting up the school. You know, all of a sudden. Um, the the video changes from sort of a nice melodic kind of song talking about the girl, and then it changes to a violent music. Um, and he, there's a gun, and there are shots, and you know he, he he's uh, it's a preview of what he was planning to do. Now perhaps he may have thought of shooting up a school at one time, actually. Um, and it's interesting because there was a girl, a neighbor, who came out and said that um he she she met him she met him at um they both worked together at Panera and when the when covid came Panera closed that store and so they weren't together anymore but she said that um that she you know she kind of rejected him they, I'm not sure whether that was the girl that he wrote the song about it could well have been or there could have been previous girls or other girls from class um, but anyhow, she she started. She liked him. They had nice chats. Uh, but she started ignoring him because um, because he had told her that he had uh, aspirations of going into his father's business, um, and and uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember what the I forget what the father's business was. But anyway, he wanted to um, 
join his father's business. And so, you know, he was hoping to do that, to, to move up to that. And so she didn't want to get in the way of his doing that. And, yes, here's some of the lyrics to the song that I was talking about. You're always on my mind, girl. <laughs> then he talks about her having a fat ass. And then he talks about a flag and a map. And anyway, it starts shooting when he, he it, it rhymed. Something rhymes with fat ass. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and so, so this was, and the second video, which was also really good, was a video of the street. And this was the street that the parade went down. And um, and that he, you know, perpetrated this mass shooting on. So all of these things, if you just watched his videos, <laughs> you would get, and you knew there were other things about him, you know, what like his parents would have known, uh, should have known, um, then you would know that this is what he was thinking. So, um, I mean, you know, he couldn't have spelled it out more clearly um, if he, unless he put, you know, had, had a plane skywriting <laughs> that said, um, I am going to perpetrate a mass shooting on July 4th, the parade. You know, it's interesting because um, there was the parade, the man in Wisconsin some months ago who went down a parade route and killed tons of people with his car. And it seemed like um, that Bobby Cremo may have been copying that. And in fact, after he did the shooting in Highland Park, he actually drove to Wisconsin and he was going to do another shooting there. So, um, so all of these things, really, you have to be an idiot or you have to not want to see them to not pick these things up. So it is very sad. <laughs> and, um, and he is now, he was arrested soon after. Um, and soon after the shooting, and um, he is now in jail, presumably facing uh, facing trial, facing uh, he, you know being charged with mans or homicide, and and uh, um, and the father. The interesting part here is that the father and mother got a lawyer because they were concerned that um, they were going to be in trouble, as they should well be, <laughs> for what they ignored all these years, um, 22 years. Uh, and, you know, the, um, think, remember the, the Michigan school shooter. The Michigan school shooter, Ethan Crumley, uh, who went to a school in Oxford, Michigan, and killed a bunch of people. And um, his... His parents are now in jail because they did a lot of things similar. It's also similar. It's like, duh, people wake up. Um, his parents, unfortunately, are in jail because of their neglect. They're um, not seeing some of his red flags. He had tons of red flags uh, for a number of years. And uh, his father had, it, it's, it's so interesting because in both of these cases, like in the Ethan Crumbly case, his father bought him a gun on, for, as a Thanksgiving present, and he did the school shooting uh, not long after that. Uh, and with, with um, Bobby Cremo, his father essentially bought him a gun in the sense that he gave him permission to get one. 
Now, um, you know, I don't know since he was 22, I don't know if he still needed his father's permission, but it, but it doesn't matter. His father signed off on giving him permission to get guns, whether he had to use that in the end or not. I mean, the idea that his father would do that contributed to what happened. So they're scared, as well the parents, as well they should be. Um, they are scared that, in fact, they are going to have the same fate as um, Ethan Crumbly's parents. So, all right. Um, there, you know, he, he has, his story is really interesting. But, of course, you know, if you look at all the people that he killed, in all of these cases, it is so sad to, to the tragedy, the numbers, and the people. And, and um, you know, when you, when you look at their pictures and you see their stories, you realize, you know, that they had such a life uh, in front of them, a potentially wonderful life in front of them. And um, these shooters had no right to take it from them, obviously, and could well have been stopped. All right, let's switch to Nicholas Cruz. Nicholas Cruz was 19 years old when he um, perpetrated a school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Um, He is now 23, and um, he is charged, well, he entered a guilty plea to 17 counts of murder and 17 counts of attempted murder of students and staff at this high school. Now, I actually feel very strongly about this case um, because I do not think that he should be put to death. And further, I think that the fact that there is this trial going on right now, this sentencing trial, which is just traumatizing all of the families of the students from this high school and really traumatizing, you know, anybody in the, in the gallery of the court, you know, of course, that's voluntary, but still, and traumatizing the jury. You know, they have picked... Um, I think they picked 12 people to be on the jury, and then they picked 10 alternates because, um, you know, these jurors might drop like flies when they see, uh, go through all of the, the video and the audio, and they are supposed to go through uh, the school itself. They're supposed to, during the trial, which just started this past Monday, yesterday, um, they are going to go through the school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And this school has not been um, touched, cleaned, <laughs> or anything uh, since the shooting. And so, you know, you can only imagine what it is like with blood all over the place, with bullets, um, with uh Chairs, you know, tossed all around, uh, you know, of course, tremendous chaos, disarray. And also, because it was Valentine's Day, and I'll tell you why he picked Valentine's Day, but um, it's also amidst all these signs of violence in the school, there are also the signs of love, of Valentine's Day. In one class, for example, they were making... um, 
valentines to give each other. They were pretending that the teacher, it was a very clever assignment. The teacher uh, had them do write valentine. It was an English class or a psychology class. I can't remember now, but um, I think it was an English literature class. Anyway, I don't know. Either one. It fits for either one. Um, it was a class where they were having them write Valentines as if they were a character from Romeo and Juliet. So that's a very clever, very creative kind of assignment. And so there they were sitting in their class doing these Valentines. <laughs> and um, when, when Nicholas Cruz came in, you know, shooting, uh, spraying bullets all over the place. So... When the jury goes into the school, they are going to see this mixture of love and hate, basically. Of, um, you know, besides this class making these Valentines, I'm sure there were other uh, signs of Valentine's Day because kids just on their own were giving Valentines, giving cards and, and gifts and so on to each other. So um, there must have been lots of, of signs of Valentine's Day. Um, so it's going to be very tough on the jury, and already just uh, you know from the first day, because they played these videos, these uh, audios, um, where audios and videos where you can hear the shots, you know you can see the people falling, um, being hit with the with the with the bullets and running and so on, the chaos, the screaming, um, and. And that in itself has been very traumatic. There was someone who was in the gallery that yelled, stop. I don't know if that was a parent or somebody else, but, you know, they couldn't take it and they left. And unfortunately, the jurors cannot leave. When we come back, I will tell you more about Nicholas Cruz and his path to becoming a mass shooter. So stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about what makes mass shooters tick. Uh, Looking particularly at Bobby Cremo and Nicholas Cruz, and I was mentioning Ethan Crumbly from uh, Michigan, a school shooter in Michigan. And, um, you know, I, I, I do want to mention, um, uh, you know, this is all, it's been almost every week, it seems like, uh, there is another mass shooter of some sort. Um, and this is taking a toll on all of us when we see the victims and when we hear about this. I mean, you know, this on top of COVID and and everything else that's going on in the world, um, the Ukraine and Putin and all of this, uh, the economy, <laughs> I don't have to, all of these things that are on our heads, um, it obviously is, is traumatic uh, to, to an extent for us to hear about it. But, but um, this, this is not something that we should just accept because, you know, the more that this is happening, the more uh, it begins to, we begin to stop paying attention. We, you know, we, um, we get desensitized to it. Oh, yeah, another shooting. And that is not what it should be. We should not, you know, think, be casual about this. We have to think about stopping it. And so that is what I am talking to you about today. So let's get back to Nicholas Cruz. Um, So uh, I read Nicholas Cruz's 217-page confession, and I watched the video um, of his jailhouse interrogation, and I was uh, watching it while on television and commenting play-by-play live. And so uh, here are 10 mitigating factors for, oh, I was starting to say about how I'm angry that this trial is happening altogether. It did not have to happen. It did not have to torture uh, the families of the victims and the jurors and, uh, and you know, anybody else who is, um, who is going through this. Um, obviously, the people who are closest to the tragedy are being affected the most. Um, but... There, there could have been a way, there was a potential way to not have the trial, and I think the defense attorneys totally screwed it up. Uh, because as of early on in the case, he offered, or they on his behalf, his defense attorneys offered on his behalf, to have him plead guilty to the murders and, and attempted murders, um, and if the prosecutor would agree to take his plea and give him life in prison without parole. But the prosecutors um, did not agree to that, which is why we're having this sentencing trial now. But, um, you know, why did they not agree to that? Did the prosecutor want to make a name for himself, want to be on television, you know, gavel to gavel? Uh, There was some pressure from the families. Some families want him to be put to death, not all of the families. And um, 
you know, I think it was decided to, to not accept his plea based on very selfish kinds of reasons. Now, you know, try to, if you're a parent, you can put yourself in these parents' shoes. You can try to. And imagine, I have a daughter, and if a gunman came in to the school and shot her, dead, um, I'd probably want to shoot him. But um, shooting him or killing him in, you know, giving him death is not going to bring back the children. And um, there is something to be said for forgiveness. Uh, all right, let me let me tell you some of these mitigating factors. Um, and well, before that, uh, you know, his his defense attorneys, I think, are screwing this up. And if he doesn't get death, uh, it will not be because of them. It's it's it would be it will be because the jurors feel sorry for him just watching him throughout the trial, which is supposed to be a four month trial, uh, and seeing that he you know that he really is impaired, um, that it's not like a, he's not a cold killer. Well, obviously he you know it's in it's at the point that he went with his gun um, shooting uh, throughout the school. Yes, he was a cold killer. However. That was due to mental illness, as I will tell you. But the thing was, he should never have, if they, when, when they found that the prosecutor didn't accept the plea, wasn't, weren't going to just agree to life in prison if he pled guilty, when, they, when the defense attorney saw that there was no use, they should have pled him not guilty by reason of insanity, not giving a guilty plea. <laughs> I mean, that kind of just um, makes it very easy for the jury to, uh, it, you know, to decide, I mean, it brings it up already to the sentencing phase, like it's doing. Okay, so, um, first, he's had many, many things stacked against him since he was born, and I'm going to tell you about 10 highlights of the many mitigating factors. First of all, he began life with the deck stacked against him. His mother, Brenda Woodward, was a homeless, violent career criminal abused drugs during her pregnancy with him and gave him up for adoption, which caused him to forever feel that he was unlovable. Next, he was adopted into a comfortable lifestyle uh, by parents Roger and Linda Cruz, but at age six, his father died suddenly and his mother had to go to work. And that left her with very little time to nurture him or to, you know, watch uh, his mental state and be more um, proactive in getting him mental health. Then uh, the shadow of his genetics loomed over him, and he soon started to manifest telltale symptoms of the what's called the triad of a budding psychopath. And this triad is torturing animals, setting fires, and bedwetting. Now, we don't know for sure. I don't know that he has admitted that he was a bedwetter, but we do know that he tortured animals and set fires. And his mother would call the police on some of these occasions. The police records show more than 45 calls to his home for various problems, including violently acting out. Um, his mother's discipline fell short, as did her realization that these were signs of mental illness. There are vague reports of his having been diagnosed with a number of things, such as ADHD, 
autism, depression. But his most significant diagnosis, schizophrenia, seems to have eluded these mental health professionals. Now, he heard, you know, again, I got a lot of this from watching his interview. It was like, uh, it was an hour, at least an hour, this jailhouse interview, when he talked, he was asked questions, and he talked about things, and he talked about hearing voices, including command hallucinations, you know, hallucinations, voices telling him to do things. And he called these voices demons, and they told him to hurt himself and to hurt others. He did almost. He did often cut himself, and he made at least two suicide attempts. So, since he wasn't getting mental health treatment consistently, he got a little, but it was like catching, catch and catch as catch can. So he self-medicated with marijuana and Xanax to try to quiet the, the voices. But this made his underlying condition of schizophrenia worse, and that is what happens when people have the genetic predisposition to schizophrenia. And then they use uh, particularly pot, marijuana, to try to quiet the voices. Marijuana makes these, uh, ge- this genetic predisposition manifest itself, brings out the schizophrenia. And that is what happened, in my opinion, to Nicholas Cruz. Um, also, another, another uh, mitigating factor... Uh, he was reportedly in treatment at a place called Henderson Behavioral Health during a nine-year period. But clearly he had incompetent therapists because they missed the severity of his mental illness and they never Baker-acted him. Now, there are uh, recent reports about how some a psychiatrist and some of these mental health professionals, at least one other, um, tried to get him Baker acted. That's what it's called in Florida. Uh, the, the, what I was talking about before, if someone meets the criteria of um, uh, a danger to self, danger to others, or gravely disabled, they can be involuntarily hospitalized. And although he did all kinds of things, Cruz did all kinds of things, from torturing animals to setting fires to being violent, um, he, he was never Baker acted. Now, I suspect that that had to do with the fact that his family didn't have insurance because, um, because it was the hospital, reportedly, that didn't want to admit him, even though there were some mental health professionals, or at least two, who said that he should be in, in admitted against his will. Um, then when he got to be 18, now remember he was 19 when he shot up the school, when he, got, when he reached 18, he stopped going to treatment, such as it was, um, and he was allowed to fall through the cracks, both by his mother and by uh, the mental health professionals. The final trigger was when his adopted mother died suddenly of the flu and pneumonia, in November 2017. So this was just months before he uh, shot up the school. This was November, and um, he shot up the school on Valentine's Day, February 2018. And so when his mother died, it reminded him of being abandoned by his biological mother, you know, when she gave him up for adoption. And also it took away his mother his last shred of guidance and love. And so he ultimately projected his rage 
the rage that he felt towards his biological mother originally onto the high school because onto Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School because both of them had expelled them so to speak, expelled him so to speak and that is what uh, and led to his downward spiral his biological mother uh, giving him up for adoption his adopted mother dying not that she wanted to die <laughs> she didn't want to abandon him and then the school which just had sent him around the school system um, the school district had sent him to various schools and he really wasn't fitting in anywhere. And then they, then Marjorie Stoneman Douglas refused to take him back. And so they expelled him. And he, so he took out his rage about all three mothers, so to speak, you know, uh, his biological, his adopted, and this, this mother, you know, who was supposed to take care of him, this school system or this high school in particular, um, he took out his rage towards them. And then Valentine's Day became a perfect date for his rampage because it highlighted how he had no one who loved him, no parents, no friends, no girlfriends, and it would spoil the day of love for others. Like if he didn't have anybody who loved him, he would take away this loving day from other people. And also it would make him uh, more notorious to be called the Valentine's Day school shooter. You know, like if it was February 15th, for example, or February 13th, he wouldn't have that name to go with him. It would just be another school shooter or the Parkland school shooter. But Valentine's Day school shooter has a more uh, impressive ring to it, so to speak. Now, um, we really have to... um, we really, the, the, so the key, the bottom line is that the key to stopping mass shooters, whether they're school shooters or shooters in grocery stores or parades or churches, um, the key to stopping the mass shooters lies with the parents, not to make a dysfunctional home uh, and to watch for all of these red flags. I mean, can you imagine, you, you, you don't even know, <laughs> I don't know which is worse, the mother who didn't make anything of this silhouette that he painted on her on her garden fence uh, of a man looked like looking like him with a with a rifle, or the three uh, rap view- videos that he made um, that I think you know that his parents should have been aware that he was doing, um, and they never watched them. <laughs> oh man. Um, so what we need to do is to have parents, uh, being more, being more aware of, um, what is going on in terms of their, the way they are being parents, how they are nurturing their children and the signs, the red flags that their kids are flying. Another example is, um, the young man in Buffalo, New York, who, um, shot up a supermarket. Now, he was planning it for months, and he um, killed it, cut off the head of a cat. He killed a a cat. (laughs) He killed a cat and cut off the head and showed his mother this this cat without a head. And what did the mother do? She gave him a box to bury the cat in. Didn't take it as a sign that he needed therapy. Actually, the school had recommended him to the police who recommended him to therapy, and that uh, therapy facility didn't hospitalize him either. What is wrong <laughs> with with all of these people who are involved in making 
mass murderers. Well, thank you for listening to uh, Dr. Carol's Couch. I'll talk to you next week. Um, Thank you again for listening, and I'm sure I'll have another interesting story or issue to talk to you about next week. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 